The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. My name is Steve Winstead. For those of you I haven't had the good pleasure of meeting, I'm one of the pastors here at Harvest. And if you're new here, we are in a series that we've been in for about two months covering the book of Exodus. And what we've been looking at is we've been looking at how God is redeeming his people, taking them out of slavery and bondage to the Egyptians and setting them free to go and worship him. Now here's how the story's gone so far. God takes a man, actually a baby, born into a slave nation. The Hebrew nation's a slave people. This baby boy was born, and he was born with a judgment upon his life. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all the earth, had declared that all the baby boys should die. Yet God, in his sovereignty, in his providence, saw fit for Moses to be placed in a basket upon the Nile River. And in that basket, this baby went down and was adopted into the very household of the most powerful man on earth. He was adopted and protected under Pharaoh's own house. And he lived there for 40 years. Then the next 40 years of this man Moses' life, he spends in the desert as a shepherd. And God is shaping him, preparing him to be a shepherd to his people, the Israelites. God calls Moses through a burning bush to go back to uh, the nation of Egypt and declare to Pharaoh that he is to let the Israelites go. Now when Moses shows up before the uh, Israelites... They would have very little reason to trust or believe Moses. Moses really couldn't identify with the Israelites. The Israelites were a slave people, and, Fa- and Moses had grown up in luxury in Pharaoh's house. Moses had never lived as a slave like they had, but yet God provided Moses with his older brother, Aaron. Aaron was 83 at the time, and for the 83 years of his life, Aaron had been a slave in the nation of Israel to the Egyptians, and God had prepared him. Aaron gave credibility to Moses' voice. He served as the voice for Moses, and then Moses goes to Pharaoh. Now, look how God has organized this thing. No ordinary Hebrew slave could walk into the court of Pharaoh. That would never happen. But Moses, Moses had been raised in the house of Pharaoh. In fact, this Pharaoh, the current Pharaoh, was one who would have been like a brother to Moses. And I'm sure this Pharaoh was thinking, I haven't seen you in 40 years since you killed a man. I want to see what's going on. And he allows Moses to enter into his courtyard. Now Moses, when he shows up, he's carrying a shepherd's staff. Because he's been a shepherd. And he shows up before Pharaoh. And guess what Pharaoh was holding? A shepherd's staff. In all the artwork that we find in the, uh, of Pharaoh throughout Israel, I mean throughout Egypt, it almost always has Pharaoh holding a shepherd's staff. You see, that shepherd's staff in Egyptian hieroglyphic means this. It means the ruler. The one who reigns. Pharaoh was the shepherd of the Egyptian people. He reigned in rule, and that staff represented the authority of the Egyptian gods. And that's what Pharaoh's got. And here comes Moses with his staff, and his staff represents the authority of the one true 
God of the universe. And last week we saw a precursor of what's to come, a showdown between the one true God and the false gods. Moses throws down his staff and it becomes a snake. Now it's interesting that it would become a snake. Because Pharaoh would have been sitting there and on his headdress, guess what was in the middle of it? A snake. You see, for the Egyptians, the snake was emblematic of all the false gods that they worshipped. And Pharaoh was the mediator to the people for the gods. And he had that snake on his head. Now we know that snake is emblematic of something else. It's indeed emblematic of all the false gods and the one who's behind all the false gods that we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is enemy Satan. Behind all those false gods and here Pharaoh stands with his serpent and Moses throws his staff down. It becomes a snake. Now the Egyptian magicians, they come and throw their staffs down and guess what? They become snakes as well. But scripture says this, that Moses' staff, it doesn't say Moses' snake, it says Moses' staff swallowed up the staffs of the Egyptians. Because guess what? The very power of God, God is about to swallow up all the false gods of the Egyptians and show that he is the one true God who is worthy of worship. He is going to defeat these false gods that these Egyptians are following. Today we're going to ask a question. It's a pretty basic question, but it's a very important one. It's the question that God in this story is asking the Egyptians, he's asking the Israelites, he's going to ask the other nations, he's going to ask their generations, and that question is this, who is your God? Now when we hear that question, we can treat it like a question that we've heard once and check we've got it and we understand the answer. But in truth, that is a question that we answer over and over and over and over again in our life. And all the decisions we make and how we live and what we do, we're answering over and over again, who is our God? And we're going to see a few things repeated over and over again in these plagues that we're going to look at today. One, we're going to see this, Pharaoh's heart is hard. That's going to be repeated over and over and over again. It's a major idea, this idea of the hardened heart. Then we're going to see over and over and over again that Moses is going to say these words. Let my people go that they may serve or worship me. It can be translated either way, serve or worship. It's interchangeable because they can mean the same thing. Let my people go that they may worship me. Pharaoh is keeping them from going to worship God. And then we're going to see this showdown between the false gods and the one true God. And God's going to say that he wants his people to know. To know that he indeed is God Almighty. Now the Egyptians, they were a highly religious people. In fact, we found over 3,000 temples from this time period where they worshipped all of their gods. They believed that Pharaoh was the one who mediated for the gods. They believed that he was assigned by the gods to keep order here on earth. And as long as the gods were pleased with Pharaoh, as long as Pharaoh kept the gods happy, there would be order on earth. So if you ask an Egyptian this, if you said, what causes the sun to rise? 
They would say the gods do if Pharaoh does his job. If he said, what causes the, the Nile River to flow? They'd say, well, the gods do if Pharaoh does his job. If you ask them, who allows our babies to be born healthy and grow strong? They'd say the gods do if Pharaoh does his job. Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, was a god. They worshipped him as a god. Pharaoh was, get this, to the Egyptians he was the god-man who came to mediate with to the Egyptians for the gods. Pharaoh was a false messiah before the Egyptian people. And we're told that God here is going to judge the gods. In Numbers 33 verse 4, look at what it says here. It says, On their gods also the Lord executed judgment. So this showdown, it's not so much between Moses and Pharaoh. It's not so much between the Israelites and the Egyptians. This showdown is between God Almighty, the one true holy God, and these false gods. James Boyce says of the Egyptian gods, he said, there are about 80 major deities in Egypt, all clustered about three natural forces of Egyptian life, the Nile River, the land, the sky, the first two plagues were against the gods of the Nile. The next four were against uh, the, the land gods. And the final four were against the gods of the sky, culminating in the death of the firstborn. These Egyptians, they considered themselves free. But guess what? They're in bondage and slavery to all the false gods and they are blind to see it. And what we're going to see today is that God will judge the false gods. The, the judgments are going to increase with intensity. And what I want to do today is we're going to look at a couple of these in detail, especially the first one, and we're going to pick up a pattern of what God is doing here. And then we're going to uh, uh, hover over the other ones pretty quickly. That's why I put all the details about these plagues in your bulletin. And we're going to see what God is doing here in this instance. Let's look. If you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 14. If you ever get lost about where we are, it'll be on the screen, so you can just look up there. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. It said, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Here's what we see happening over and over again. In fact, the verse before it, verse 13, this is going to be mentioned over and over and over and over and over again. Pharaoh's heart is hard. In fact, the first five plagues, guess what it's going to say? Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The last five plagues, it's going to say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So last week when Vincent said, who hardened God's heart? Was it God, who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Was it God or was it Pharaoh? The answer is yes. We see both of those occurring. But here's what we see. God, the one true holy God, always looks at our heart. You see, we're quick to look at people's actions, what they do, how they do it. But actions can be deceptive. 
We can act in a way that's contrary to our heart because we want to be perceived a certain way, but because we know when we enter into a certain group that the expected pattern of behavior is something. But God looks at the heart. In fact, when King David was appointed king, it wasn't because he looked the part. It wasn't because he had the resume for the job. It was because God looked at his heart and said, There is a heart humble and softened toward me. Throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, you're going to see Jesus talk with people and he'll often answer questions that they're not asking. He'll address things that they're not talking about. But he'll be addressing what's in their heart. God always looks at our heart and examines our heart. And here, we're going to see over and over again this hardened heart. In verse 15 and 16, it says, Go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he's going out to the water, and stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Here we see Pharaoh's refusal to obey. And we can compare it to Moses. This man who over 80 years of his life has learned to obey the word of the Lord. Moses is called the most humble man to ever live in scripture. And humility, what humility boils down to, it's not this pride or this arrogance that I've got it figured out. I can do it on my own. I've got all the answers. I'm the master of my own ship. Humility is this. He's God. I'm not. Pride is this. He's God, but I can do it on my own. It's essentially setting yourself up as your own little deity. But humility says, he's God, and I need him. And here we see Moses' heart has been humbled to hear from the Lord. Now in verse um, 17, it says, Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know That I am the Lord. Behold, the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the dial, and it shall turn to blood. He says this, this is how you're going to know that I'm the Lord. In the Hebrew, that word know isn't talking about know up here. It's not saying you're going to know it in here. It's saying you're going to know it in here, in your heart, in your inner self. He's saying you're not just going to know it through knowledge. You're going to know it experientially. They're about to taste that he is the Lord. They're going to experience this in a deep way that he is the Lord. And that's what God is saying. You're going to know that I am the Lord by this. Guess what he's going to do? He's going to strike the Nile. Take your staff and strike the Nile. That staff that represents the power of God. Now the Nile River in Egypt, it was the reason the nation flourished. The Nile was their transportation The Nile provided water for them to drink. It provided water for them to get irrigation for crops, to provide for food. In fact, they even set their calendars by the Nile River. They had a god called Osiris, who they said, that's the very lifeblood of Osiris is the Nile River. And they worshipped the Nile in their culture. And God comes and he says, you know what? You don't live by water. I'm going to strike it and it's going to become blood. Because what do you live by? You live by shed blood. And this river becomes a bloody mess 
and everybody has to go and dig for water. And we see that that's always been the story of Scripture. That we have to be covered by blood. That life doesn't come from water. Life comes from blood. And we see it right in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 when the animal's blood is spilled and Adam and Eve are covered with animal skins. We're going to see that later when when the blood of the lamb is uh, killed and painted over the door, the blood. And then we're going to see the fulfillment of the blood of the lamb coming in the person of Jesus Christ who John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of the God who takes away the sins of the world. His blood covers us. And he's telling the Egyptians, You do not live. Life doesn't come by water. It comes by blood. If you want to truly live, that's what it's going to come by. And he brings judgment here upon their false gods of the Nile. Now in verse 22 In 23 it says, But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house and did not even take this to heart. What we're going to see today is this hardened heart that doesn't fully turn to God. Actually, Pharaoh's heart's not going to turn to God at all, but sometimes we're going to see in our own hearts, there's areas of hardness. Areas where we hold on to, that we allow to be hardened, that we're not going to let God touch. We're going to cling to some false God that we think will provide, that will give us what we want and what we need. You see, when we talk about false gods, most of us would say, you know, I don't really struggle with false gods. That's not something we... Think about a whole lot. Yeah, struggle with false gods. No, we don't really think of it that way. But when we define false gods, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll see that that's a struggle we have very regularly. Look at this definition of false gods. Anything can act as a false god when it's more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. If I have that, then I'll know I have value. Then I'll have peace. Then I'll feel significant and secure is acting as a false god. There are many ways to describe the kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. This asks us, to whom are you looking to provide for your needs? You see, whatever we look at and go, that'll satisfy. That'll bring me peace. That'll make me feel better. That'll give me the security and the longings that I want is a functional false God. And what we're going to see is just as Pharaoh's heart was hardened completely to God, oftentimes there's areas that our hearts will be hardened as well. We're going to see three things that Pharaoh does and that I think we still do today. That I know when I'm honest myself, I still do these. First, he rejects God for the false gods. Secondly, we're going to see him have a false repentance. And third, we're going to see him just completely ignore all the warning signs, all the people, everything that tells him that he is trusting in a false God. He's just going to outright ignore it. Now, 
we're going to see some other plagues come. If you've got this chart here, you can, you can look at it for just a second. Next plague we'll see is a plague of frogs. That was upon their goddess Hecwit, the fertility goddess that they worshipped. And frogs come all over the land. And because they so worshipped the frog goddess, and Hecwit was this goddess with a human body and a frog head, they would not kill frogs. So frogs just roam all over the land. And finally, Pharaoh begs for them to be removed. Then we're going to see the judgment of the earth with the gnats as the dust turns to gnats. And we see that Pharaoh's magicians can't duplicate that one. Then we're going to see flies. And with the judgment of the flies, we're going to see that God only brings the flies upon the Egyptians and protects his people. And know this, we who are in Christ, God has a hedge of protection around us. We're going to see the livestock judged. These goddesses that look like cows, these goddess Hathor and Isis, the goddess of beauty and the goddess of love that we still often turn to. In fact, these goddesses, their temple, it was in an Egyptian city called Memphis, these cow goddesses. Then we'll see a, a, a judgment of boils, and at this one, it attacks them physically, and their goddess of health and healing are being judged. And then in chapter 9, starting around verse 13, we're going to see the seventh plague, a plague of hail. And I want to show you a couple things in this plague that jump out at us. In verses 14 through 16. Now what we've been seeing in each one of these is Pharaoh's heart is continually hardened, this pattern. And here's what it says. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. little context, this is God speaking to Moses, telling him what to say to Pharaoh. He says, I'll bring all these plagues on you yourself, Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Again, God continually repeats that. He wants us to know that there is no God like him. None of the false gods will ever satisfy our soul. They won't meet our needs. They won't meet our true longings. He wants that to be repeated. He wants him to know. Not just up here. Not just in his head. He wants him to experientially know that there is no God like him. And in verse 15, For by now I could have struck you with my hand. And struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Verse 16. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in, in the earth. Here's the reason this happened. God wants to show his power. That staff that Moses is carrying around that represents the power of God. God wants all Egypt all of Israel, all the nations to know that He is the one true holy God. He is powerful. He is mighty. And that's why He's raised this up. Do you know it's still our purpose today? When we follow Jesus Christ, God raises us up for a reason. Raises us up from death to new life for a reason. That we can show His power throughout the earth. That's our purpose. We can all write that down. That's our purpose. Yet, how that manifests itself in our lives can be very different. For me, I don't think the primary or secondary or 
third dairy or any dairy way, I'll primarily glorify God is through my singing. It's really not that pleasant. Now, Tony, that's a different situation, right? Tony can use that for, for God's glory. That's what he's raised him up for. And God may have raised you up and put you right where you are in that place of work, that business, in the school, on the street, in your home, so that he can show his power through you to all the nations. He wants people to see who he is through your life. That's our purpose. That's what God is about. That's what he's doing. And he tells him that's why he's raised him up. To show his might and his power. On down in verse 20 of chapter 9 it says, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slave and his livestock. What you're starting to see is this. God says, hey, I'm raising this up. I'm making this happen so the nations will know that I'm God. Some of the Egyptians start to believe. They start to believe in the power and the might of the one true God. And guess what they do? They rush their livestock in to protect them. And it's interesting. When the Israelites leave Egypt, as they march through the lands, every nation has heard about the the plagues. Every nation has heard about the one true God who defeated Egypt. All the generations throughout Israel's history will know about this. It's the most oft-repeated story of the Old Testament over and over and over again. They're all going to know who He is. And here, when they leave, there's some other nations that go with them. Some Egyptians actually will leave with them. And on the day of Pentecost, several hundred years later, at the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, we're told that there were some Egyptians there who worshipped the one true God. And when they heard about Jesus Christ, they placed their faith in Him. God here is doing what He said He was going to do, and people are coming to know who He is. On down in verse 27, look at Pharaoh's response. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is right, and I and my people are wrong. Here's the second point that I made earlier. We're going to see a false repentance. What Pharaoh does, it appears to be good news. He says, I've sinned, and you're thinking, yes, he finally recognized it. But he doesn't truly repent. All he's saying is, I don't like the consequence of my sin. Can you please remove the consequence of my sin? I don't want God. I don't want the one holy God. I don't want to walk with him, be near him. I just want him to remove his wrath from me. So he confesses his sin. But he doesn't turn to God. You see, repentance is this. You see your sin, you confess your sin, you acknowledge your sin, and then you turn away from your sin toward Jesus and run toward him. You may sin again, but as soon as you see it, you continually confess it and run back to him. When a person is born again, when they've trusted in Jesus Christ, not their own works, their own efforts, their own wisdom, but they 
uh, trusted in Jesus and they've said, I'm going to set aside the false gods. I know they won't satisfy. The pattern of their life will be one of repentance. That when they see that, hey, I've started to trust in a false god and I've, I've, I've roamed from God in this area. When they see that false god, they'll reject it, confess it, and turn toward Jesus. That's a pattern of a believer. And so often, when our hearts are hardened in an area, not only will we reject God for false gods, but we'll offer up a false repentance. I'll confess it because I don't want the consequences of it, but I really don't want to give it up. You know, I have a fear often that there's many, especially in our American culture and here in the South, where um, we say, hey, if, if you don't want to feel the wrath of God, come pray this prayer. And if you pray this prayer, you're going to be okay. And if there's many that have come forward and they've prayed a prayer, and they've said, I, don't, I confess my sin. I don't want the wrath of God in my life. Remove it. But they haven't turned toward Jesus and trusted him. They haven't really repented. They're not a new creation. They aren't running toward him. They are just saying, hey, I know I'm a sinner. I don't want God's wrath. I'll pray whatever you tell me to. I'll say whatever you tell me to. I'll come and sit in church if that's what it means. But there's not a lifestyle that you see in a person who is a new creation. A person who's a new creation, that's what Scripture talks about. When we come to Christ, we are a new creation. We're born again is the words. A person who is a new creation is born again. When they see their sin, they are repulsed by it. When they see their false gods, they run from them, confess them, and they go to Jesus and cling to him. And Pharaoh here, he just wants to remove the consequences. He doesn't want to feel the wrath of God any longer. Can you please remove that? Can you please take that away? It's a false repentance that we see here. And he's going to do it again. He'll, do it, uh, he'll say the same thing again in chapter 10, verse 16, that he wants, uh, that he confesses his sin, but it's not true repentance. In the ninth plague, we see a plague of darkness. The sun, the sun god Ra, Amon-Ra, was one of the primary gods of Egypt, and they worshipped the sun. And for the sun to be darkened is an extreme judgment. And Moses comes and says, God is going to darken the sun. And the sun is darkened. And I don't know if you've ever been like in a cave or somewhere where it's completely dark. I mean, Complete darkness, type of darkness where you put your hand right here and you don't know your hands in front of your face. But it's terrifying. And this is the condition of Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart is darkened. He can't see his sin. He can't see the own error of his way. He can't see his false gods. He's completely darkened. And this ninth judgment is upon and a picture of what's going on. Look at how he responds in verse 27 and 28 of chapter 10. It says, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, the him is Moses, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Here's the third thing that Pharaoh does. He just ignores it. 
get away from me, Moses. I don't want to see you again. I don't want to be reminded of my sin. I don't want to turn from it. I want to stay with my false gods. I'm just going to ignore it. Get away. Do we ever ignore areas in our life where God is saying, danger, wrong way? Hey, you're, you're clinging to a false god over here. You may not realize it. You may not want to call it that, but that's what you're doing. You're clinging to it for your hopes and your security and to meet your needs and to give you peace. You're clinging to this. And you need to confess it and turn and run to him. See, Pharaoh's response, he rejects God for these false gods. He offers up a false repentance. He's not genuine. He's not sincere. All he wants is, is the consequence, God. Remove the consequence, God, and I'll move on. He doesn't want God. He doesn't want Jehovah. And then he ignores it altogether. And when my heart is hardened, in the areas that I'm often blinded to, these are the things that I still do. And the mark of a believer is that when we recognize this, we confess it and we run to God. Why? Because we have confidence that though I may not understand it, God, I'm more secure in God. I can rest in Him and His ways more than I can my own ways, my own thoughts, my own desires. The question for us today is not only who is your God, because we wake up every day and we're, by how we live, showing who our God really is. But what do you do when God judges your gods? When you see the judgment of God upon your gods, what do you do? Does your heart harden and you deny and you ignore? Or like Moses was humble, are you humble and your heart softens and you confess and you truly repent and turn to him? We're about to celebrate communion. And communion, it's that picture of denying all other gods and saying, you are my God. I have no other hope except in the body of Christ and his blood spilled for me. I don't live by the things of this world. My satisfaction, my joy, my comfort, my security, it doesn't come from things of this world. It comes from the blood of Jesus. And when we come and celebrate communion, that's what we're reminding ourselves of. The tables are open to those who have trusted in Jesus, but there's times that we need to take to repent and turn maybe from some false gods that God is revealing to you. I pray that you'll take time to ask God, are there things that I'm holding to that maybe I don't see that I need to confess and to turn for you? Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. It's true. Your word is light to us. When we can't see, we can trust in your word. When we don't understand, we can trust in your word. When it seems like all is dark around us, we can trust in your word. So Lord, help us now. Even though we can't see, at times, a trust in you. Lord, reveal to us areas where we're clinging to false gods and help us to be brave enough, bold enough, sensitive enough to your spirit to confess and to run to you. Help us to have faith, Lord, 
Faith where we trust you, even in those areas that we want to cling on to, knowing that you are far better. And Lord, as we celebrate communion, we're reminded of your goodness and your grace. That through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. That we live by blood. And that that is good news. That our blood doesn't have to be spilled because Jesus was. And Lord, if there's any here today who have never trusted in Jesus, I pray that they wouldn't come uh, confess their sin for merely the rewards, but they would confess their sin because they want you. Because they see it. There's no other way to live other than with Jesus. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.